because you reach that tipping point, the methane is not released slowly. When you reach that tipping point, it's effectively a, a bomb and it's all released at once. And then all of your good restoration projects and your technology-based carbon capture are completely meaningless. Welcome back to Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, we welcome Samir Whitaker, Biodiversity Lead Specialist at Orsted, one of the leading renewable energy companies specializing in offshore wind. Biodiversity is a bit of a hot topic at the minute, and it's becoming only more important in a world where capital infrastructure investment budgets are continually increasing, as without a healthy, prosperous, and biodiverse environment, we have nothing. If you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Samir. Hi, Jack. I'm Samir, and I work for Orsted, which are a renewable energy developer, and we have a large focus on offshore wind. I work in our biodiversity team as a lead biodiversity specialist for the UK and Ireland. And one of my jobs is to figure out how we're going to deliver a net positive impact for biodiversity through our projects. So I struggled to find one word to sort of describe my roles, but I guess I'm in nature conservation and I have been for about 17 years now in a variety of different roles focused, I would say, quite a lot on the role of nature and biodiversity management in large-scale infrastructure projects. So thinking about oil and gas pipelines, highways, airports, and renewable energy more recently. So that's really interesting. Obviously, biodiversity is a really big theme at the minute. We see protests, we see change in policy. It's a conversation topic that is that the front of a lot of our minds when in, if we're working in the infrastructure space. What does biodiversity mean for you? So I suppose in a nutshell, to me, I see biodiversity and nature as interchangeable terms. And biodiversity, obviously, short for biological diversity, is a is slightly more jargony. But it really, the two things refer to the variety of all of the living organisms on our planet. But I think more crucially for me is the connections between all of them. And it's the connections between all of them that, that really make this world habitable. And th those connections are so sensitive and intricate that disrupting any of them really can lead to these sort of ecosystem collapses. And thinking about that from an infrastructure space, we hear about some of the negative consequences of these big infrastructure mega projects on biodiversity in the environment. But what does that mean in reality in terms of the day-to-day -day design, delivery, and, and management of the infrastructure assets? So I think what it, what it means is if, if we're thinking about the gold standard of infrastructure development is understanding from a very early stage what actually exists on your site in terms of biodiversity. So what is the total complement of species and habitats and how, how do they interact? And having a, a reading of this before even designing your infrastructure allows a developer to go through 
what what we refer to as a mitigation hierarchy, which is essentially to be able to avoid minimize impacts to the extent possible, given your particular infrastructure, and then to minimize and restore any of those impacts that are unavoidable. And then on top of that, we need to start thinking about how we can get to some of these targets that we're increasingly talking about, like net positive. How do we leave a net positive outcome at a particular infrastructure project? That all depends on knowing what exists on the site, how they interact. So that's how species and habitats interact with each other and how they will interact with the actual infrastructure itself. So when we talk about biodiversity and the interconnected nature to biodiversity and the, the fauna and the flora, et cetera, how does this all feed up towards climate challenge that we're all faced with at the minute and some of the environmental pressures that we're seeing in the world that we live in? So I think let's just consider us as part of nature for a minute. I think we can argue that one. Climate is obviously an existential challenge to all of nature. And just thinking of some of the pathways, but if you consider sea level rise and how intertidal habitats are going to be inundated and essentially irrecoverable because that land is lost. That's just one of the many examples where these sort of broad scale changes from the climate crisis are going to impact biodiversity. And then flip that on its head. And we're increasingly seeing that restoring biodiversity is a big part of the solution to address these sorts of climate impacts. Again, taking the intertidal example, there's a lot of evidence showing restoration of natural habitats as coastal defense, as an example, is far cheaper and more resilient than built infrastructure. And there's a good body of evidence showing this in terms of cost and sort of technological considerations. So it is biodiversity, natural habitats impacted by climate change, but also hold a solution. And I, I think it's important to, to say that it's not going to, restoring habitats is not going to completely solve the climate challenge. We obviously need to drastically cut emissions and that's the core of the solution. And we can see that the recent data show that rest restoring natural habitats to sequester carbon, as an example, can take us about a third of the way to reducing emissions for what we need in terms of a Paris-aligned outcome. Would you mind if I just drill down into that in a little bit more detox? It's, it's a really interesting point. What do you mean exactly by restoring habitats to sequester carbon? So if you think about, I suppose, the most sort of common example would be planting a whole bunch of trees. And there are very established frameworks that allow you to calculate how much carbon would be drawn down from the atmosphere by planting X number of trees of a particular species over 30 years, as an example. Using that framework, you could then, if you wanted to, register those credits, so each ton of carbon dioxide equivalent as one carbon credit, which could then be traded on the open market. So what I mean restoring habitats to draw down carbon, it would be bringing back a natural ecosystem like salt marsh or seagrass that we know draw down carbon or planting trees to draw down carbon. But, and, and crucially, land is a limiting factor there. So we can't create more land. There's only a, a set number of places where we can plant trees. And, and there's a set number of places where trees should be. We shouldn't be planting trees on natural grassland and replacing 
habitats that should naturally exist there because that's going to cause even more problems. So there's a limit to how much restoration we can actually do. No, that's a really interesting point. So what you're saying is actually that restoration piece can get us about a third of the way to net zero. Is that right? Let's say that there's quite a few analyses that show that there is that hard limit on restoration and thereby putting the focus back on emissions reduction and maybe leaving open the argument for some sort of technology-based extraction of carbon. That's really cool. And we actually had a, a podcast a while ago with Ariella Shani, co-founder, COO at a startup called Albo Climate that use satellites to measure and track carbon stocks within the environment and, and track, monitor progress of, of restoration programs around the world, which is just so fascinating. It's such a good example of leveraging data and digital to help advance the way that we care for and invest into the environment that we live in. It, it is fascinating. And I, th I think maybe it's a bit tenuous, but I think it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning about the interconnectedness and, and how species and habitats interact with each other. Um, and then taking that further to climate crisis and tipping points. And tipping points in the climate crisis are all about these interactions where you, basically, you, you reach a stage where the progression of degradation suddenly becomes logarithmic and then the impacts therefore become logarithmic. And in a way, when you reach that point, there is nothing you could do in a reasonable time frame to reverse that. And I think this whole sort of melting of Arctic tundra and release of methane is a really good example of that. Because you reach that tipping point, the methane is not released slowly. When you reach that tipping point, it's effectively a, a bomb and it's all released at once. And then all of your good restoration projects and your technology-based carbon capture are completely meaningless because the scale of carbon and carbon equivalent in the atmosphere has gone way beyond what we projected. And I'm really interested in the role that it plays within infrastructure. We heard a few years back around the impact of discovering protected species along the HS2 line, the amount of delays and the impact that had to the project schedule, and, and rightly so. How embedded within the infrastructure design, delivery, management type world is biodiversity and what impact does it have on the decision-making process? I have to say it varies hugely across regions. And I think we can extrapolate from England where arguably we have a, a very strict and well-regulated planning process. But even in these scenarios, we, we end up missing things because biodiversity is complicated. There's no single, there's no one metric to measure and track biodiversity. And we simply still don't have enough knowledge about how a lot of these interactions work. So again, just taking England as an example of, I would say, good and possibly best international practice from a planning perspective, we're still missing things here. So then you think about other less well-regulated markets and where the need for infrastructure might be more pressing. And in, in most planning systems, there's always a sort of provision for something like overwhelming public need, which allows you to maybe take some shortcuts. And one of the 
easiest shortcuts to take would be to not conduct a very detailed screening of your species and habitats. So it must be better regulated. And I think things like World Bank International Finance Corporation performance standards come in here, but that applies to, I have to say, a relatively small proportion of big infrastructure projects in the developing world. And that leaves a lot of unregulated or less well-regulated projects where there is very little consideration of biodiversity and leaving it as an afterthought, as we know, makes it much more expensive to address and that makes it much less attractive to restore. Just on the point of regulation, what regulatory frameworks are in place that determine the amount of effort that, say, asset owners or developers have to go to to protect the natural habitats? I'd say the first one is obviously environmental impact legislation. Environmental impact assessments are probably one of the most sort of standardized processes globally from a sort of biodiversity screening perspective, but it's largely a qualitative process. So I think what's changing now, and England is really leading the way, uh, biodiversity net gain legislation, which is looking like it will start in January 2024, developers are now required to not just understand what is present at their site, but how much and what condition it's in. And post-development, they're required to have at least a 10% gain on any habitat that they've impacted. So I think it's a move towards a really positive and, and, and robust and, and a sort of quantitative approach. And am I right in thinking that the climate-related financial disclosures also play a role here? So reporting frameworks like TCFD, uh, which is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, are driving better company behavior. And I'd say there's a good body of evidence to show that disclosure does lead to improvements in company policy. Taking that further to company practice is a, a bit of a leap, maybe, but it does take you one step down that causal pathway of getting to better action. And it allows, I think importantly, maybe most importantly, it allows for companies to be held to task in a very quantitative way. So TCFD requires you to make quantitative trackable targets. It's not just statements like we will be better. There are numbers attached that can be tracked. And there's a number of advocacy bodies that now very specifically track company progress uh, and report on company progress. The same thing is gonna happen for nature. The Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures have released their beta framework right now. A number of companies are piloting this already. Um, this talk of several governments making it mandatory, which again is going to drive those first company policy and then company action. So I know that in a world that is so full of regulation and so dependent on policy, it's often easy to overlook what is happening at a ground level and what companies are really doing for the environment. So I'd love to just ask you and put you on the spot, I'm afraid. Do you think that looking at the UK, we are actually making a difference here when it comes to nature, biodiversity and the environment? Or is it just for the show? Is it just more of a sort of CSR program? Yeah, I, I think that 
we are making a difference. I've seen a number of examples in the last maybe three years where there are very proactive approaches to habitat restoration. I think what is missing or what the next step needs to be is this more collaborative approach to get to scale. Scale is the, it's the key word here, particularly when we talk about marine restoration, uh, but restoration in general, because scale of habitats is directly linked to uh, connectivity, lower fragmentation, and more resilience. And these th three things combined are the difference between success and failure for large-scale habitat restoration. And you said collaboration. Sorry, what do you by that exactly? Well, I think, and then this is natural. Companies compete. So I think it's it's natural for a company to want a restoration project that, that they fund and they can talk about as their restoration project. That becomes watered down a little bit when you have 10 different companies on the web page. And I think that is a, a bit of a challenge. You, If you're thinking about value for money, you want to be getting the most bang for your buck, the most PR bang for your buck. I'm not saying this is universal for all restoration projects, but I think it's a mindset. It's a way of, of thinking that, that sort of limits how much collaboration can actually take place and it limits the scale of, of these projects. So I guess it's more more sort of collaboration and belief in the, the bigger picture, right? It's, I guess, one of the tricky things with that is that it, it sounds as though it might then rely on almost more the, the morals of some of these large companies rather than a intrinsic link online. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I, I'd say to some degree it relies on morals, but I think relying on morals is probably not the right long-term solution. I, I Again, we've talked about the sort of regulation and, and the fact that there is a lot of it. But there are, I think, also cases where more joined up regulation could really improve this sort of collaborative approach to things like habitat restoration. If you think about, we'll take the specific case of offshore renewal in the UK. There's an increasing number of new projects in the pipeline that may require to carry out some sort of habitat or species compensation activity in order to get consent. Now, often these projects would have to carry out compensation on the same types of habitats or species. There's a, there's a clear, ready-made almost opportunity there for a number of these developers to pool these funds together and do one or two massive projects rather than a bunch of discrete little projects, which are still valuable, but wouldn't be as valuable as one large-scale project that is more resilient. And... I guess with all of that, it comes down to measuring value, right? It comes down to actually quantifying the value that is then returned to maybe the environment, to shareholders, to to everyone, all of the stakeholders involved. Yeah. That, yeah. What, what what do you think? What what do you think the right approach there there is when it comes down to actually maybe quantifying and and making decisions based on that ROI type figure? Yeah. So I think that the the, the this is something I found again and again in my in my master's research, but and it, it's not a new conclusion by any means. But the whole sort of idea around measuring value was 
almost the core barrier that all of the companies I interviewed reported on. And I've certainly seen this in my own work and I'm sure you have in your own work because there's so much to unpack under that question of value. It, even who, value to who? So we think about who's the actual stakeholder here? Ideally, the, we would measure the value to nature. In that case, we would have a suite of metrics and indicators, KPIs that measure the increase of nature at a particular site. But then you're making financial decisions. So you do need that sort of ROI type. Uh, you need to be thinking about, I'll say it again, colloquially. You need bang for buck also in terms of where you're deploying restoration funds, for example. You want to deploy them to a project that you know is going to succeed, if that's ever possible to have that complete knowledge, or at least has the best chance of success, the best chance of enduring, the best chance of returning the value, which might be a set of ecosystem services or a set of criteria that allow you to consent a project or a number of species that you've agreed with regulators you're going to deliver. So all those sort of things around this whole sphere of measuring value are still in a way up in the air. And the sort of maybe the underlying complexity of it all is, again, there is no one metric for biodiversity in the way that there is for greenhouse gas emissions. You have tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, and you can use that. That's the same anywhere in the world. There, there is no analog for biodiversity. Yeah, that's a real shame. And I hope one day we are able to maybe standardize it because the more people understand it, we can measure it, we can then improve it. But I love the idea of nature being a stakeholder. I think that really sets the right tone here. Okay, so we know biodiversity is important. We know ways to, to report on it. We know that we need to get better at measuring it and to, to standardize it. Let's talk about making it happen. Yes. For any maybe developers or asset owners listening to our conversation here, what, what do you think should be the, the, the first go-to step to making some real headway in improving the, the natural world? Yeah, okay. I, I, think there's, I think there's several, and I, and I think some of them are quicker wins and, and some not. I think the first one really is broadening your internal value framework. So... What, what, and what do I, so broadening the definition of value. When we talk about value in a company perspective, we're, we're thinking about we're thinking about dollars and pounds. And even though we've we've come a long way in recognizing environmental impacts, when we get to a difficult resourcing situation, the value always goes back to the financial. And I think drawing on frameworks like TNFD, where and we're able to start adding to that sort of definition of what is material to a company. And I think there's a really good body of evidence out there to show what the potential costs are of not doing it right. So I think that's the first step. Uh, I think the, the second step is that there is and there are solutions to the question of metrics and, and what measures to use. There might be a little bit of work to do yet, but I would just take England's approach, so the, so the DEFRA metric, biodiversity metric, which again will be the basis for reporting against biodiversity net gain, is a really good starting point. And I think it's a really good communication tool as well, both internally and externally, on 
At the outset, what are the potential impacts on nature from our project? What can we do about that? And then you can use that Excel sheet to, to sort of iterate and put in a bunch of different scenarios and then reach a stage where you could see what is acceptable to both your company and your stakeholders. And by stakeholders, I'm including nature again there, but represented by probably an NGO. So I think those two things together take us quite a bit of the way. I'd say the, the sort of final thing, and this is a difficult one, is taking all of this into some kind of internal campaign, education campaign. It's, it sounds really basic. Again, a lot of the companies that I interviewed, the biodiversity leads that I talked to expressed a lot of frustration at the level of knowledge about why people should be doing it internally. And it's what you said earlier, which is a lot of people think, oh, said we've made this commitment, so we need to go and do it without taking any time to actually think about what are the costs and benefits? How is it actually going to improve our business, if at all? How do we find the resource to do it? So there's not much thinking about how to integrate it to the business. And this whole idea of mainstreaming biodiversity commitments, again, it's one of the sort of key points in the post-2020 biodiversity framework that the Convention on Biological Diversity released last year. And it's this idea of, even if you get everyone to understand that it's important, what are the steps you need to take to actually mainstream that within your company? And one of the key steps is to make sure that people actually understand why it's important and why we're doing it. Brilliant. Thank you. I think actually that's provided a really good framework for folks listening on the changes that we need to make in order to be able to make some more meaningful progress with biodiversity. Sumit, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.